Once again, welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel. So glad that you all are here worshiping with us today. Uh, I have missed you all. Uh, You're probably like, what's the big deal? You've been here. I know I've been here, but I've been not here. You ever have those moments like where you're here on Sundays, but during the week is so busy and crazy that you feel like you kind of weren't all the way there. Um, And so I'm glad to be back with you guys this Sunday again to dive into God's word. I missed preaching last week. It's like a bad itch for a pastor. Uh, when you don't get it every week, it just kind of starts building on you. So um, so we're going to dive right back into where we were two weeks ago in our study of Matthew chapter 5. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and grab that. Uh, we started this new ministry year with a purpose theme that we're going after. Um, and we've entitled this, uh, Love the King, Live for the Kingdom. And uh, this is about us learning from Christ and his most extended teaching in the New Testament, how to be better followers of Christ. And that's what we're going after. That's what we're looking at. In the last couple weeks, um, Jesus has kind of been hammering uh, on different sins. Have you noticed that? Like he's been going down his little list here, right? And he's been talking about sin in our lives and sin in the world around us and how do we deal with it and how do we respond to it and how do we move as followers of Jesus Christ? Now we're going to kind of turn the page. In the next couple weeks, he's going to start addressing not necessarily sin, but relationships. How do we engage in relationships in our life, in our family, in our workplace, in our world, in a way that glorifies him, that puts him first, that keeps the king on his throne in our lives in the middle of messy relationships. And so um, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And um, we start off here, I just want to acknowledge something that today, as humans, all of us, when we were created, when we were born into this earth, um, that we were all born with this innate sense of justice, right? This, This need for right to happen to us. It might not always be dialed in just correctly. Like, you, like you've seen some people on the news, you're like, I'm pretty sure they don't have one, Micah. <laughs> they do. It's just kind of been warped a little bit. We all have this innate need for right and justice. And, and because of that, we are naturally inclined that when something goes wrong, to seek revenge, to seek retaliation, to seek to make right what we perceive is wrong in the world or in our life. We don't have to be trained it. We don't have to be taught it. It just kind of is naturally there. Um, And when our sense of justice, especially for ourselves, has been imposed upon, it just kind of comes out, right? Um, For example, our our youngest daughter, Ava, uh, when we uh, first brought her home, she was just the calmest, quietest, cutest, perfect little baby. Even her like cries were like little whimpers, you know, like they were just, it was, it was, it was awesome. We never had a baby like that before. Okay. And so we brought her home and everything was going great. And then about a year old, she had just kind of started walking. And one day she was walking across the living room floor and she tripped over some toy or something that was in the floor. And all of a sudden a flip like switched in her, a flip switched, a switch flipped in her head. Have you ever seen that movie in out with the, the anger guy and his head just goes like fire out the top. Like that was her, all of a sudden, turns, she picks up the toy, she throws it across the room as if to say, that was wrong and you shouldn't have done that to me, right? Her sense of justice all of a sudden found its outlet and she was gonna fix what had just happened that was wrong. Are you tracking with me? Now, nobody had to teach her that, right? I, I don't go around our house throwing stuff, okay? I don't think Courtney is throwing, I'm not there all day every day, but I'm pretty sure Courtney's not throwing stuff around the house, okay? 
We don't let our other girls do that. She didn't learn that by watching someone or picking it up from someone around her. She, it was just in her. Are you with me? Are you tracking today? Right? Like, they just kind of, when, when justice is violated in us, there's this urge to come out and do something about it. Right? And it's not necessarily a bad thing. God has put that in us. But the key is, how do we deal with it? How do we use it? Um, and this isn't something that just affects kids, um, even adults, even those who are supposed to be, you know, mature, you know, well-controlled, self-controlled adults. I see this all the time. If, if you're driving around St. Louis at any point in time, you'll see this. It happens by someone riding up right on the bumper of somebody else as if to say, you are in my way, get out, or worse yet, the speed around, slam on the brakes, right? You know what just happened there? What happened was, there's been an injustice, and I'm going to make sure you know about it, all right? You cut me off. You did something, and it just kind of flings out of us at times, and so how do we deal with this? What does Jesus say about this? The problem with retaliation and the problem with revenge is that it rarely actually achieves justice, or peace even, for that matter, right? What we think we're doing to right what is wrong and to get back to normal, you almost never gets us actually back to normal, right? It, it becomes this escalation of conflict, like you did this to me, so now I'm gonna do this to you, now you feel slighted, so you're gonna do this back to me, and it's this back and forth and back and forth thing. And so as we step into this day, Jesus is gonna show us a better way to handle conflict and issues in our relationships. But I just wanna warn you this morning, this is about to push up against everything that you think you know and feel inside of you, okay? He's about to step on every toe you have. He's about to ruffle every feather you have. He's about to press in because our natural inclination to deal with relationships doesn't usually look like this. So are you ready for Jesus to rearrange your world today? That was not very convincing. Here's the main idea. To put Jesus first means to put me last. To put Jesus first in my life as a follower of Christ means that I have to put me, my needs, my desires, what I want, what makes me feel good, I have to put that at the end of the line. So look at verse 38. Let's see what Jesus has to say to us today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 says this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So I entitled the message today, um, Surrender Your Rights. And I'm going to dive into this topic of rights and revenge and retaliation through a series of questions this morning. So the first question that wells up in us when something happens, when something goes wrong is, what about justice? All right, so that's point number one today. What do we do about justice when something's been wrong or violated or um, has went sideways? And so Jesus starts here the same way he started all the other passages we looked at the last couple of weeks, which is, you have heard. All right, so again, he's referencing an Old Testament teaching here. He's, he's pointing back to a Jewish teaching of the Old Testament and what it means. And this idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth actually comes in three different places in the Old Testament. You can find it in Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 19 through 20, and Deuteronomy 19 through 21. 
But what's interesting about this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth concept is you can actually find this uh, even outside of the Bible in many legal codes tracing back to the earliest civilizations. All right? In Latin, we call this talionis, which means that this is a, that the penalty for the crime, or the penalty should meet the crime. All right? Whatever has been done that was wrong, the, the penalty for that Crime should be equal in, uh, in, in level, equal in type, equal in kind. Like it should be, as it says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It should be proportionate to the offense. But what's interesting is as the Bible applies this idea, it applies it in all three instances specifically to legal cases, to issues of legal authority, Right? In other words, something's went wrong, take the case to the judge, and the judge then lays out a sentence or a penalty or a verdict based on eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Where the Bible does not apply this law or this idea is to personal vengeance or retaliation. In fact, the Old Testament actually forbids personal vengeance in Leviticus 19.18. It says this, you shall not, everybody say not, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But, here's the converse, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Right? Second greatest commandment, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. She says, when someone wrongs you, don't take out personal vengeance, but instead love them. So what Jesus is about to teach us here actually isn't a new thing at all. He's actually teaching us the same thing that God has always taught. Romans 12, 17 says it like this. Repay no one, no one. Sometimes it really hurts when Jesus takes away our categories, doesn't it? Right? Sometimes we like to divide our, our life into categories of people in this category and people in this category and people in this category. And yeah, not them, but yeah, they're okay over here. And repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So Jesus is saying, listen, I know it taught that eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth works, but I'm going to tell you something different today. And the reason he's having to address this is because in Jesus' day, the Jewish law had actually stopped enforcing the lex talionis. They, they had stopped doing the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth in legal cases, and they just started fining everyone. So no matter what your crime was, for the most part, unless it was something like just completely over the top, you would come in and they wouldn't give you a punishment that met the crime. The, the judge or whatever would say, no, just pay this fine to so-and-so, and then you can go on. And the problem with that is that it made individuals feel as if justice was not being had. And when we feel like justice isn't happening, it makes us want to take justice into our own hands. This is actually a very similar problem that we see a lot even in our culture today. When we don't feel like the legal system is doing its job and doing what it should be doing and following the letter of the law, it forces individuals and citizens to feel like they have to take it into their own hands and get justice by their own will. When the rule of law breaks down, our internal need for justice rises up even more. But Jesus says, don't do it. Don't seek personal 
retaliation or vengeance. Don't take matters into your own hands. Now, there's three different ways that this teaching of Jesus has actually been misapplied, even in the church throughout the generations. So I just want to deal with, just real briefly, three kind of false teachings or false ideas that have been built around Jesus' words here so we can be clear what the Bible is saying, but also what the Bible is not saying, okay? So first thing, Jesus here is not talking about pacifism, right? The Bible does not oppose police. The Bible does not oppose military or judges or governments or justice systems or laws. He doesn't oppose any of that because actually God is the one who put that stuff in place, God has put certain authorities in place to help keep the peace and to maintain justice. There are several verses where the Bible talks about that. Luke 3, 12 through 14, Romans 13, 1 through 4. But I want to read you this one here from 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 13 says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, right? Be subject for the Lord's sake. He's saying, listen, I've put some people in, in place to, to carry out justice, to deal with these matters, submit to them, let them do their job, okay? So God's not saying to just, just roll over and let everything happen. He's just saying follow the proper channels here because the goal is to handle the offense and to get justice without personal bias or emotion, a lot of times when I'm the one trying to get justice for my own situation, there's a lot of emotion in that. And I can tend to see things with a slightly uh, tinted color on them, right? And God's saying, I, I've, I've, I've given you a system. Use the system, okay? Let that work. So it's not pacifism. It's also not cowardice. Some people look at this and they, they say, well, if I've got to follow Jesus like that and I can't ever stand up for myself and I can't ever fight back and I can't ever say something, then that's just being a coward. I think what Jesus is saying is actually that it takes more courage and trust to receive an offense and not retaliate and leave it in the Lord's hands. It takes a whole lot more courage for me to stand there and take it and not lash back and trust that the Lord will handle it in his way with greater justice than I could ever give personally. Now, I say that, but let me also be clear on the, on the flip side. This does not negate our responsibility to stand up for others. The Bible talks a lot about standing up for those who can't help themselves, for those who can't fight for themselves. Psalm 82, 3 through 4 says, Give injustice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Right? So there are times where, yes, we need to stand up and fight, and we need to stand up against evil for the sake of others to protect them. If, you, if you're here today and you're a husband or father, that goes doubly for you, all right? Ephesians 5 says that you are the leader of your home, and part of leading your family and leading your home is making sure that they are protected, that you are, you are watching out for them, you are caring for them, all right? In John 15, 13, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, 
If that's true for our friends, how much more is that true for our families? So there is something to this act of me stepping out and taking the hit and protecting others and being willing to suffer so they don't have to. That's different than me lashing back because you've hurt me personally. So it's not about pacifism. It's not about cowardice. And the last one, it's not about abuse. Just because Jesus tells you not to retaliate doesn't mean you have to stay and keep taking abuse and harm and hurt. Okay? You can get out. You can leave. You can walk away. You can escape. And Jesus would, con- would commend you to do that. We actually see Jesus do that. There's a couple different times where the, the mob is closing in on Jesus and they're trying to throw him off a cliff or they're trying to stone him to death or something. And what's he do? He looks for a way out and then he escapes through the crowd and he gets away. Right? Paul, Peter, two of the greatest apostles, oftentimes being stoned and, 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 and uh, trying to be thrown in prison and all these other kind of things because of, they were preaching the gospel. And many times they looked for a way of escape, either through a window or whatever the thing was, to get away from harm. That's okay. That's good. Jesus isn't telling you to be a punching bag. Right? But he's saying walk away, don't retaliate back. It's not pacifism, it's not cowardice, and it's not about abuse. It's about loving those who would do evil against us. I was reading a story this past week, a little article by David Mathis um, about Jackie Robinson. And just thought it was such a great illustration of what we're talking about here. I usually don't read illustrations, but this one's just really good. So I'm just going to read a little bit of this article to you here for a moment. So um, it says this, it, it was 1948 during Jackie Robinson's second season of Major League Baseball when some bigots in Cincinnati were really giving him the business. Just the previous year, Robinson had been one of the Uh, had been the one with the monumental courage to break the color barrier as the first African-American of the modern era to play baseball's highest league. He had endured unthinkable cruelty and injustice for desegregating the game, and he was succeeding on the field and off. Check this. Not only did he bat just a shade under 300 in 1947 while he is being verbally and even sometimes physically abused the whole season, He was named Rookie of the Year, but he was holding his tongue and fists and not fighting back. But now, in his second campaign, some still weren't convinced. Um, Eric Metaxas tells the story of the signature moment that happened in 1948. At one game in Cincinnati, when spectators in the stands were shouting racist comments at Robinson, his teammate, Pee Wee Reese, pointedly walked over to him, put his arm around him, as though to say to the bigots in the crowd, if you're against him, you're against all of us. It was a signature moment in the statue commemorating that stands in Brooklyn's minor Keyspan Park. The story of Jackie Robinson and with him, the Brooklyn Dodgers president, Branch Rickey, is one of the most powerful tales American athletics has to tell. Robinson overcame what seemed like insurmountable obstacles, not only by playing outstanding baseball, but even more significantly by not retaliating when treated with rank, injustice, and racism. Jackie's not fighting back against such filth and injustice was as heroic an accomplishment as anything the sports world has ever witnessed. It's easy to miss the historical magnitude of that moment in 1947 for the advance of civil rights in America. 
Consider this. When Ricky signed Robinson to the Brooklyn Dodgers, breaking the color barrier in baseball, this is crazy. It was a year before President Truman ordered the U.S. military to desegregate seven years before the U.S. Supreme Court rendered its decision in Brown versus Board of Education, eight years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus, 10 years before President Eisenhower used the U.S. military to enable the Little Rock Nine to attend Central High School in Arkansas, 16 years before MLK's I Have a Dream speech, 17 years before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and 18 years before the Voting Rights Act of 1965. How did Robinson do this? How did Branch Rickey, the owner of the Dodgers, do this? The author goes on, he says, Robinson was a Christian and his Christian faith was at the very center of his decision to accept Branch Rickey's invitation to play for the all-white Brooklyn Dodgers. Rickey himself was a Bible-thumping Methodist whose faith led him to find an African-American ball player to break the color barrier. At the center of one of the most important civil rights stories in America lies two men of passionate Christian faith. Branch's strategy for desegregation was non-retaliation. A precursor to the vision of the nonviolence to come in later civil rights movement, but it would not just do to try to follow the Jesus pattern. Branch was looking for someone with deep faith and proven character. Nothing less than emotionally excruciating work lay ahead. When Branch and Robinson met for the first time to explore the possibility, Branch grilled him for hours, made him commit to three years of non-retaliation. Ricky pointed him to the biblical account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Ricky told Robinson, we can't fight our way through this. We've got no army. There's virtually nobody on our side. No owners, no umpires, very few newspaper men, and I'm afraid many of the fans will be hostile. Then Ricky issued Robinson this pointed challenge. I'm looking for a ball player with guts enough not to fight back. That's the heart of the Jackie Robinson story. He changed America. We can do that. He changed America by successfully living out both on and off the baseball field the revolutionary and world-changing words of Jesus. And there's there's nothing less than that, friends. To, To follow this mandate from Jesus is not only world changing, it's life changing for each and every one of us. Because everything inside of us wants to do the exact opposite of this, right? This is like those home makeover shows, you know, where they walk in and the house is like all crazy. They're like, we're going to take out this wall. We're going to take out this wall. We're going to make this room bigger. That's what Jesus is doing right now, right? Like he's coming into our, uh, our relational hearts and saying, all right, I'm tearing down this wall and I'm tearing down this wall. And we're redoing the whole floor plan of how we do relationship. And if we do it, if we, if we will see things differently as he sees them, it will change not only us and our relationships, but can change the church, can change the community, can change the world. God's righteous justice and my personal vengeance is not the same thing. We need to get this. 
there are so many people, especially Christians, who are fighting fights that they believe are God's righteous fights, but they're actually more about their own personal bias, their own personal agendas, their own personal issues. And they're fighting them in the name of Jesus Christ when God's saying, I'm not asking you to fight that. I'm asking you to follow me. I'm asking you to do what I've told you to do. I'm asking you to love the people I've called you to love. We need to set vengeance aside and leave justice and righteousness to the Lord. So the first question is that. Second question, what about my well-being? Right? So if, if we can't go after justice, if I can't defend myself and retaliate, then how am I going to keep myself safe? What about my well-being? Jesus goes on. Look at verse 39 again. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So first of all, I just, wanted, I just want you to notice in verse 39 who we're talking about here. He says, do not resist the one who is, what's it say? Evil. So we're not talking about that, you know, that thing that happens at work where it was an accident and they said something or they did something they didn't really mean to or, you know, it was, they were ultimately they were doing it for your good or they were doing it out of ignorance. No, no, no. They're doing it out of evil. They're purposefully coming after you. They're trying to hurt you. This isn't like some side issue. This is like they are attacking you. Those are the people Jesus is talking about. And he goes on to say, if anyone slaps you, if anyone sues you, if anyone forces you, right? again, wide open, no special categories, not like this group over here, it's okay if they kind of attack you and you need to love them, but this group over here, if they come after you, man, you can go right back at them. No, there's not two categories here. Sometimes we'll see this play out with like family stuff, right? Like, like it's okay for me to say something bad about my sister, but if you talk about my sister, man, you're going down. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like we have like these categories, like certain people it's okay and certain people it's not okay. Jesus says, no, 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 we're not doing that. If anyone, here's what you need to do. So then he goes into all these little scenarios and let's just kind of talk about these scenarios for a second and unpack them. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Now, this whole slapping thing, a lot of times when we read this, we want to take this into account like it's, like it's, a, like it's a harm, thing, like it's, they're trying to physically hurt you. But it's actually less about the physical harm, it's more about the dishonor, right? Slapping in this culture was not so much to, to cause pain or inflict um, pain on someone, it was more to show dishonor to them. And uh, so we need to actually kind of play out what's happening here. So Nathaniel, come on up. Um, I'm, going to use, I'm going to use Nathaniel here for this. Um, he's on staff, so he has to do this. Okay, so... so if, Two guys here, right? Like, guys, you know what I'm talking about. Like, if another guy comes up and punches you, you can kind of handle that, right? Like, you might, you might have a little tussle or whatever. But, like, if somebody comes up and slaps you, that's a whole nother level, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about, right? And here, Jesus doesn't just talk about slapping. He says if someone slaps you on your right cheek, right? So that's pretty specific. And most people, the assumption is most people are right-handed. So if I'm going to slap him on his right cheek, that means I'm doing it this way. The backhanded slap, which was double dishonor 
in the Jewish culture. Thank you. So this was more an issue of honor than it was of physical harm. Are you with me? Right? It's a pride thing. And he says, listen, if someone slaps you, turn to them the other cheek also. Don't slap them back. Don't insult them back. Don't try to dishonor them the way they, they just dishonored you. Let them take another shot. Again, it's not about the physical harm. It's about the dishonor. It's about the challenging your, your character or your pride or your ego. Okay, but we already said earlier, it's okay to escape harm. So if, if the slap starts to escalate into, you know, a punch or a tackle or whatever, like, you can get away. You don't have to literally stand there and become a punching bag. Because it's not about the harm, it's about the honor. It's about the pride of the matter. So then he gives a second illustration. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, give them your cloak as well. So again, we already established that these people are evil, Right? And so if an evil person is suing you, most likely they're not suing you on legitimate grounds. Are you tracking with me? Right? If, it's, if they're doing it out of evil, then they're trying to hurt you. They're trying to get something from you. They're trying to abuse you or in some way through this. And so it's not like they had a lawsuit going here. And a lot of times when he says they, they sue you for your tunic, that was kind of the shirt. All right? That was like the, the shirt that you would wear underneath your outer garments. And... So this, this whole idea of suing you for your tunic, a lot of times they would give their tunic or their shirt or some piece of clothing as, uh, as collateral, right? Or as like a deposit for something. And so if I gave you that and then the business deal went sideways and now you want to keep it because, you know, whatever, okay, that's fine. He says, but if they do that, give them your cloak as well. The cloak was the outer garment. It was like the, the big heavy coat that they would wear. And it wasn't just a coat. They would use it to, to protect themselves from the elements. They would even use it as a blanket at times. When it would get cold at night, they would cover up with it. It was a very, very important piece of clothing for this culture and for this climate. In fact, the Old Testament actually has a law that says you cannot take someone's cloak from them by law because it was such an important piece of their, um, of their wardrobe. And so it says, listen, if someone sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Why would he say that? Because, again, it's not about the clothing, okay? It's about the conflict. Obviously, they're mad at you about something. Something's went wrong. They've got an issue with you, so they're trying to take something from you. So you need to do whatever it takes to resolve the conflict, right? You need to sacrifice and give them whatever you've got to give them to resolve the conflict and get back to a place of peace in the relationship. If that means giving them your cloak as well as your tunic, then that's what you got to do. Okay? Now, again, balance this with the rest of the Bible, right? Um, this doesn't mean that you have to roll over for every time something financial happens in your life, right? Like if you're a business owner or you're a business person, like Luke 16 tells us to deal shrewdly in our finances, to deal shrewdly in our business deals. And so it doesn't mean that every time we're in a negotiation and they're pressing on us that we have to give them everything they want, okay? Let's not take this to where Jesus isn't taking it. He's talking here about a relational conflict where you know the person, they know you, there's something going on here. What can I do? What can I sacrifice to get this back to a place of peace? Then he goes on in 41. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, it's interesting he says anyone, because it wouldn't just be talking about anyone here. He's actually referencing uh, a, a cultural piece that was going on. Um, the Romans, at this point, were the occupying force 
in Israel, right? They were, the, they were the ones in control. They were the ones that were oppressing the Jews. They were the ones who were ruling over them. And there was a law in, Roman, in, in Rome that said, if a Roman soldier came up to you and said, hey, I want you to help me, and gave you like his armor or gave you his bag or whatever, you had to help him and you had to carry his, his equipment for one mile, okay? They could force you into labor, basically, to walk with them one mile and help carry their stuff. And the Jews hated it. Because these, these guys were like the enemies. These guys were the ones who were, who were ruling over them and forcing them to do stuff. And like, that was like the worst thing. Like it was legally they could make you do it, but no Jew wanted to help a Roman soldier, right? And Jesus says, if they ask you to go one mile, go two. In other words, don't serve them begrudgingly. Serve them all the more. Do even more than they ask you to. Go above and beyond to sacrificially serve them the way that I, Jesus, have came and sacrificially served you. He's calling us to do more, to serve even those who would do us evil. Not aiding their evil, not aiding their sin, but serving them out of love. And then he ends in 42, he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He actually parallels these two words. It almost sounds like he's talking about two different things, like begging and borrowing in our minds are two different things. But he's actually making a parallel here. So he's basically saying, if someone comes up and asks you for something and you know you're not getting it back, okay, that's the scenario we're talking about here. You know what I'm talking about? Like someone goes, hey, can I borrow such and such? Okay, yeah, just take it. You're not gonna bring that back, right? Like, you know, you know says, if someone begs or borrows from you, he says, Give to them, don't refuse them. In other words, don't be greedy. Live open-handed. Be generous to others. Right? And again, this, this is tempered by all of God's word, right? We need to do that wisely. We need to, to give and be generous toward those who are truly in need. Right? Other scriptures like Matthew 7, 6 tells us not to give foolishly. Right? First, first, or 2 Thessalonians 3.10 tells us not to support someone's laziness by giving to them. It says you need to work. And so we don't want to just give willy-nilly. But if there's a true need and they're asking, he says give. Show them love by being sacrificial and giving. So he's laid these four scenarios out. And now we've got to try to kind of pull all these together and say, okay, so what's the main thing? What's Jesus really trying to say in all these examples? He's saying this, do whatever it takes to show love. And whatever the scenario is, whatever the situation is, when someone comes against you, when someone's evil, when someone's trying to push on you, like rise above that, don't seek revenge, do whatever it takes to show love to that person. It's interesting to me that the examples he chooses, I think, press on some of our most common idols in our lives, right? He deals with our pride. He deals with our money. He deals with our freedom and independence, right? All the things that we seem to value the most, he's saying, you need to be willing to lay those things down to show love to those who need it most. Don't let your responses to conflict 
be controlled by your love for yourself or your love for your idols more than your love for Jesus. Remember, our, those of you who have been with us for a while, I always use the same definition for biblical love. Anybody remember what it is? Love is you be for me. That's biblical love. It's not me first, it's you first. It's putting you before myself. That's what Jesus is saying here. Like when someone comes at you, when there's conflict, when there's, when there's problems, when they're trying to do evil to you, step up and put you before me. That's what Jesus did, right? That's what he still does. When we sin, when we do evil, just by the way, if you're new to, to Harvest today, um, we, we, we are very clear here that, listen, Christian or not, we're all still sinners here, man. Right? Like, nobody in this room is perfect. We don't have it nailed. It's not like we're, we're hitting 100 uh, this week. Okay, like this is, this is what it is. We still sin. We still mess up. And when we do, what does Jesus do? He keeps loving. He keeps forgiving. He keeps putting us before his need or before his right to dole out wrath for our sin. He's the God of the universe. He has every right to punish our sin when we do evil against him. But he chooses to love. And he chooses to forgive. And he calls us to do the same. Um, when I was coming out of college and um, started teaching and stuff, a friend of friend and me um, started this little web design business and that we had for, for years and years where we would design websites and, and things like that. And so um, I was still doing it whenever I was pastoring in Indiana a little bit on the side and so forth. And, and there was a, a friend of mine who went to, or a friend of, went to church with us who worked for this motorsports company, uh, motorsports business there in the area. And they were wanting to, to put together an e-commerce website to start putting some of their stuff online. And so, so I went on, I sat down, I had a meeting with the owner and we kind of planned out what the site was going to look like and what all, how it was going to work. And so I put all the plans together. And so um, we agreed on all that and we agreed on a price. And so I went and I started building this website for them. And pretty soon the owner started calling me with all these different changes. And I want to change this and I want to change that. And I want, how about this instead? I said, okay, that's fine. And normally that would be an issue with cost, but I just kind of, this is a friend of mine and his boss and his company. I didn't want to make a big deal. So I was like, well, just do it. And so we made all the changes and we finally got, I got the website finished and I went and I delivered it to them and said, here, here you go. And walked him through it all and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and, and then like right after that, he calls me, he wanted to make all these other changes. I said, okay, we can do that, but it's going to take about X number of hours, which means it's going to take about, it's going to require an additional X amount of dollars. And this, this owner, he wasn't a Christian. He, he didn't go to church anywhere. He wasn't into God at all. Uh, but he knew that I was. He knew that I was a pastor. He knew that I worked at a local church. And he just started railing on me right, for, for lying him and lying to him and cheating him and not, not delivering the product like I promised. And, and he started just, just going after me. And then he started going after my church. And then he started railing on Jesus and the Lord and how all these Christians are the same and blah, 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 blah. And eventually he hangs up on me. And I remember just sitting there in that moment going, Lord, why did I ever do this? <laughs> you ever had that moment where you're like, it just wasn't worth it, right? But I, I kind of had to calm myself down. I started 
praying about it, thinking about it. When I talked to Courtney and we started having a conversation about the whole thing. And and finally came to the conclusion that I was going to call him back and say, you know what? I'll do it. I'll do the work. Don't worry about it. We're going to get this done. It's going to be okay. Was that because he was right? Was it because he did, that because uh, that I didn't really deserve to be compensated for the additional work that I was going to have to do, 10 hours of work to get this done? No. Was it because the way he handled himself on the phone was legitimate or okay? No, not at all. It was because I was not willing to let the name of Jesus be hindered just to get a couple more bucks for a website. Sometimes when you're dealing with people of offense, it's going to require personal sacrifice to get through to the other side of that relationship. Loving a person of offense always requires personal sacrifice. Because they're not always going to see it your way. They're not always going to agree with what you have to say. You're not always going to be able to get to a compromise. So sometimes it means taking the hit, loving them anyways, and resolving the conflict. In the end... He thanked me. We ended our dealing on a good note in a positive relationship. But it cost me something that day. It did. There was a cost involved. But it was worth it for him to see the love of Jesus. That's what Jesus is talking about. Do whatever it takes to show love to those who would do us evil. Loving a person of offense always requires a personal sacrifice. So, we've talked about justice. We've talked about my own well-being. The last question is this. What about suffering? All right, Micah, it sounds like if I follow this route, if I do what Jesus called me to do, that it's going to involve some suffering. And my answer to that is yes. If you haven't figured it out yet, suffering is a fact of life. As much as our uh, world and TV and movies and commercials and everything else would like to convince us that you can eventually get to a place where you have enough money or a big enough house or a nice enough car or enough friends or enough whatever to get away from suffering, it's just not true. As long as we live in this broken, sinful world, suffering is going to be a part of our life. And if you're going to be a follower of Christ, I got some, some maybe upsetting news for you today. The suffering actually usually escalates rather than de-escalates. Because once you switch teams, and now you're playing for Team Jesus instead of Team Satan, he comes after you even harder. Anybody who told you that once you become a Christian, everything's roses and, and all, everything's going to go great and your finances and your health and your family and your relationships, it's all going to blossom and be awesome. That's just not true. And I'm not sure why we would think that would be true because the guy we follow died on a cross, right? Like he suffered a lot. The book of 1 Peter talks a lot about how to suffer well. For Jesus. If you're ever looking for some scriptures on how to suffer well, how to go through suffering, 
First Peter is awesome for that. Let me give you a few verses from that. Chapter 3, verse 17 says this. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. What Peter's saying there is, listen, suffering's coming either way. So you can either suffer for the evil you're doing, or you can suffer for doing good for the Lord. Because when, when evil comes and we retaliate, it doesn't solve the problem. It actually escalates the suffering. I have to suffer, then the person I'm retaliating against has to suffer more. God has to suffer by looking upon it. So the question isn't, are you going to suffer or not? The question is, what is your suffer, suffering going to be worth? What's it going to bring in the end? When we suffer for the sake of good and love, our suffering has a greater purpose. It's the same purpose that Jesus suffered for. One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5, it starts off like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the gospel, right? That God looked down and he saw us in our brokenness and in our sinfulness, and he knew that it was just gonna keep escalating and escalating and conflict after conflict after conflict. You ever feel like your life's like that? I finally get through this thing and then the next thing comes. And I get through that thing and then the next thing comes. And it's just this endless cycle. And God knew that, and he saw it. He said that they can't, they can't fix it. They don't have what they need to stop the conflict. And so he sent his son Jesus to, become, to, be, to come and be born as a human, to live a perfect, sinless life of love and grace rather than retaliation and vengeance and wrath. And then he went to the cross and he died a sinner's death. Not for his sin, he didn't have any. He died for your sin, he died for my sin. He paid my debt. And then he went into the grave and he rose three days later to show that he was God and that he had conquered sin, that he had conquered death, and that he could offer us a better way out, a better life, a better answer to the, the revolving door of conflict. He says, let me love you. Let me forgive you. Let me pull you into my family so you can learn to love and forgive others as well and stop the vicious cycle of relational conflict in your life. Instead of retaliating against us for our sin with wrath, he loved us and he suffered for us so we could love and suffer for others. So how did he do that? What, what, what's the trick, right? What's the key of being able to do that? I mean, that's a hard, that's a tall order. What did Jesus do? How did he do it? 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
How did Jesus do it? He entrusted himself to the Lord. He said, God, I lay this in your hands. It's not right. It's not fair. I shouldn't have to go through this. I, but I know that in the end, you're going to make all things right. I know that in the end, you're going to bring justice. I know that in the end, you will take care of me. And we can do the same thing. 1 Peter 4, 19 says, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I love that, that Peter uses the, the, the title creator there. He could have said anything. He said faithful God. He could have said faithful Savior. No, he said creator. The one who made everything with his breath. The one who has the power over all things, over all time. He has everything in his hands. He can and will bring justice. He will right every wrong. He has the power to do it even greater than anything that we possess. We can trust him. We can trust him. Sometimes evil people in our lives that we have conflict with that are attacking us, they're not always the first people we think of. They're not always the enemy on the other side of the line. Oftentimes they're actually the people who are closest to us. Right? Family, friends, because we're with them the most because they see, it as, they see us at our best, they see us at our worst. We have the most relational time and investment with them, which oftentimes leads to the greatest relational conflict. And so we have to constantly, this, this whole ethic of loving those who do us evil isn't just for those one-off situations that happen every once in a while at work or in the neighborhood or at the gym. Or, it's for the everyday, day-to-day, moment-by-moment relationships that we have to deal with in our lives. And sometimes we have to come back and we have to ask for forgiveness and we have to correct and repent and seek love when we've been wrong. Just a few weeks ago, I was on an email exchange with some leaders in our church. There was a group of us that were talking about an upcoming thing that we were working on. And one of the leaders sent me a private email asking me a question. And I responded to this question in the public email to everyone. And he could have responded right back to that, that group email and just really ripped into me for what I had said and done. He could have sent me a personal email telling me what was wrong and, 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 and laying into me that way. But he didn't. He waited. He covered it in grace. He waited till the next time that we met one-on-one. He said, hey, when this happened, that really hurt. I, that, please don't do that again. That's it, right? There wasn't retaliation. There wasn't vengeance. There was, hey, this was the problem. Can we fix this? And he was right. He had every right to bring that up. He had every right to address that issue. And I said, you're right. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That's what it looks like to love the way that Jesus loves, to sacrifice my pride, to lay down my agenda, to lay down what I want and to step into it with love and grace. This is what Jesus is calling us here for. 
to put love first and to put ourselves last. And, and just in case you're feeling a little um, put out by that, just remember, Jesus isn't asking you to do anything that he didn't do first for you when he certainly didn't have to. The God of the universe is never indebted to us for anything. And yet he chooses to love even when we do evil. To love Jesus well, I must be willing to suffer in his name. If I'm going to walk in this life with Jesus, if I'm going to love him, if I'm going to follow him the way I'm supposed to, I have to be willing to suffer for the good of his name. put Jesus first means to put me last. That's the whole thing. As humans, especially as Americans, we love to, to stand on our rights and declare how, you know, what's right and just, and I don't have to put up with this, and I deserve this, and I deserve that, and we have this, in, this ingrained in us from our earliest days. We have this innate need for justice and fairness and not to be slighted. And it's not bad. God can use all of that to do some wonderful things when it's channeled through the proper authorities, through the proper systems, through the proper lenses. That can be a, a, a wonderful thing. But can also greatly hinder the name of Jesus when we use it to elevate ourselves and to elevate our problems and our agenda and our issues above everyone and everything else. When I make it about me, that's when it becomes a problem. Jesus had the right to send every single sinful person straight to hell. But he surrendered his rights. He laid down his rights and his life to show us love, mercy, and to call us into something greater. As disciples of Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, man, we must seek to do the same with others. Surrender our rights so they can see the love of Jesus in us. It is a tall order. It's hard. It's day by day, it's moment by moment, it's me dying to myself over and over and over and over again. And so right now we're gonna pray and we're gonna sing and we're gonna cry out and we're gonna ask the Lord to do a supernatural work in our hearts so we can live out this calling that Jesus has put on our lives. I can't do it by myself. You can't either and that's okay. Jesus will help. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray and ask him to do that. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, God. We thank you, God, so much for all that you're doing, you're working, all the ways that you are showing yourself faithful to us, to our lives, to our church. But Lord, we come to you today just recognizing that we fall so short in our relationships. We fall so short in the way that you've called us to conduct ourselves. And we're falling on your mercy today, Lord. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you are not a fair God. Lord, that you don't give us what we deserve. 
you give us what we don't deserve. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, that you displayed it so perfectly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're asking today that by the power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, by the power of your Holy Spirit living in, in, within us right now, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would strengthen our hearts, Lord, that you would help us to trust you, to trust that your justice is greater than ours, Lord. Lord, make us brave enough to love and sacrifice and suffer instead of seeking revenge. Lord, we're here to surrender our hearts, our lives, our rights to you today. Work in us, work through us for your glory. Lord, give us the faith we need to walk with you in this way. Pray all these things in Christ's name. 